the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. All right, and he's here to say good afternoon. Welcome. It's Tuesday, 21st of April. In case you're not keeping well track of these things, you'll find that happening if you've been home for a lengthy period of time now. Many of us at least 30 days, I think, coming up on 30 and uh, sometimes you get up in the morning, what day is today? Frightening thought. Well, great to have you with us for today's program. And uh, we've got a lot we're going to talk about a little bit later on tonight. Hour number two, John Anderson from the Bay Area Rescue Mission will join us with another update. It's been a tough time for ministries of that sort that are so people-oriented, people-focused, and yet you have all of the new rules and regulations in place. And so how do you go about ministering to this hard-hit community of folks that are homeless and do it in a safe way? We'll talk about that coming up tonight in hour number two. Also, while we've all been in close quarters, perhaps too close for some that um, are in relationships that are on the edge, and now the stress of the economics and the close-knit no relief valve from maybe stress of kids and things of that sort boils over. And as the emotions overspill, it can lead to spousal abuse and child abuse. We've invited Carol Patterson from Shepherdsgate to join us. We'll talk a bit about domestic violence during this unprecedented time in American history. And most importantly, if you feel threatened, what you can do. That's coming up a little bit later on in this first hour tonight. Let's uh, dive down to cases. You've probably been watching the news today. U.S. death toll has doubled in the last week, even as many states are talking about opening things back up again. Just a week ago, on April the 14th, 26,000 Americans had succumbed to COVID-19. Today, on the 21st of April, that number is now 45,000. And as states discuss reopening, unbelievably so, it was just a week ago when the administration claimed that it had total authority to reopen the states. Someone perhaps discussed some constitutional grounds that no doubt changed the administration's opinion. But what of this question? If states are now pushing back, and we learned last week when we had Bob Zadek on with us that the constitutional right of states' power and the division the same between the federal government and the states is one that is indeed constitutionally protected. But what of states that are saying, you know, we're rethinking all of this, and you have to wonder if we're about to enter into a new season when the notion of a state like California, for example, breaking off from the rest of the Union or maybe gathering with other states like Washington and Oregon and breaking off from the rest of the Union might begin to start to find some traction. Let's get some insights. Bob Zadek, of course, is a constitutional expert and one of the perhaps the most leading historian on the Constitution that I am aware of. He is a successful attorney, author, and the host of The Bob Zadek Show, heard every Sunday morning at 8 a.m., syndicated and locally here in the Bay Area at 860 AM KTRB, The Answer. And Bob, great to have you on the program as always. Thank you, Craig. It's always a pleasure to join you. So as I mentioned a week ago, the administration claimed that it had total authority to reopen the states, and apparently someone got in the president's ear and said, yeah, that's uh, not constitutionally true. And the idea that if it's opened up prematurely, Best guess, even the experts are not sure of what that date looks like. It could potentially 
backfire big time. And so with this, we're seeing states saying, you know, we're going to handle this on our own. Um, some are rushing to open things back up. Others are saying not so quickly so. And uh, some, as you have suggested even on your own program, are exercising a little bit of muscle here that perhaps um, perhaps raises some questions in terms of uh, what exactly this newfound muscle flexing uh, at least in terms of exercising same, states are engaging in. And, and you've raised an important question as to whether or not states like California, where our governor has gone out and said, hey, we're going to act as a nation state. We're going to negotiate with suppliers overseas to purchase PPEs and acquire all the necessary hospital supplies that the government has failed to, to provide. And so I guess in a sense, well, the president did tell the states to go and do so back on March the 16th. But what about this notion to a grander degree of exercising that muscle as a so-called nation state? What are some of the constitutional potential um, danger signs here? Dangers, Craig, shame on you. There's no constitutional danger. The danger is that states don't do it. That's the constitutional danger. Uh, When... Gavin Newsom says um, he referred to California as a nation state with unbelievably strong buying power, which it does, with proven ability to flex its muscle. Remember, the, the fuel mileage standards for automobiles, which is now a nationwide rule, was first enacted in California. And since California has such strong buying power, the automaker said, we have to follow California's statute because we sell too many cars there. And the rest of the country, just including Washington, followed suit. Let's remember that the first uh, air quality rules originated in California, in Los Angeles. So California has behaved very much like a nation state long before Gavin Newsom discovered it. Thirdly, and most importantly, this is classic constitutional back to the future. By that, I mean when, when states start acting more like nations, they are acting like states are supposed to have acted ever since 1788. They are supposed to have a fair amount, much more than the most states have today, a fair amount of power over the health welfare and safety of their citizens that is not the province of washington at all that's the way it was in 1788 that's the way it was until perhaps early in the 20th century when 17th amendment and other important pieces of legislation and changes to the constitution took place so this is not new stuff this is new in the 21st century it's new in the 20th century but this is how the founders designed it. So this is in, in a very, very strange, perverse way. This is an area where extreme progressive Democrats, Newsom and Cuomo being the leaders, among others, where extreme progressive Democrats and libertarians and conservative Republicans can agree. There are many areas where conservative Republicans favor what's called, if you want to use an ugly phrase with an ugly racist twinge to it, states' rights. But states' rights is not a racist concept. It just got hijacked uh, during the Jim Crow era. But states' rights simply mean those constitutionally protected powers that reside in the states. States have, including the police power, the quarantine power. That's not states' rights in an ugly sense. That's the way it's supposed to work. So this, to me, is heartening. This, to me, is exciting. And this movement, if you will, offers more promise to all of us to get back to the good, very old days of 1788. I look forward to it. I am more excited about the political climate than I have been in quite some time. And I can hear that enthusiasm in your voice, which is wonderful. And I think, and from I've been a broader perspective, and, and Craig, that's <laughs> after I took my meds. 
Good for you. <laughs> well, and, you know, from a, from a broader perspective on this, part of it comes down to, and you just touched on it, the notion that we've really not seen this in a long, long time, certainly not in the memory of any of us. Now, if we want to discuss things about Oregon and parts of Oregon saying we're going to create the state of Jefferson, we want to, you know, pull off parts of Northern California. There was debate a couple of years ago about cutting California into three separate states, and we all thought it was just an absolutely ridiculous notion and the idea as I say danger in my opening remarks almost tongue in cheek the notion of the danger of somehow losing our beloved 50 state union but in fact as you aptly point out this was kind of the way the founding fathers had it designed and it's not altogether that bad of an idea from the perspective and we're seeing this played out certainly under the current circumstances with the coronavirus that the notion of Washington, D.C. being all-knowing, all-deciding, all-doing is really a misnomer. And the idea that somehow people in Washington, D.C. can decide what's going to be unilaterally and universally good for the benefit of Kentucky, Tennessee, California, New York, all of these varying states that have different populations, different needs, different challenges. Um, the idea of it being able to sort of be, be handed down from the all-seeing, all-knowing government in Washington, D.C., um, is not really a, a more recent concept, but in fact was something that the founding fathers would have bristled at, wouldn't they? It's how the product was designed. And just so our audience understands how unradical this all is and how the Constitution was written with that in mind. Let's start with a really small example. I'm looking out the window right now, and I'm looking at a stop sign. Who ought to decide whether that stop sign should be on the corner of the street where I live? Should it be somebody who is employed by some federal agency, or should it be my neighbor who serves on the city council? The answer is obvious. I'm not trying to be a jerk about it. But... There, so we can concede with my stop sign example that certain decisions are best made locally. That's without dispute. Once we concede that, then it's only a question of which decisions. Stop sign, bell clear, locally. Foreign policy, no, I don't want the city council deciding foreign policy. I want Washington to do that. So now we agree that federalism, that is local control, makes sense. And now let's talk about in what areas. And that's a healthy conversation. And so once we start talking about that, the federalists kind of win. And states, power to the states, kind of wins. Once we make the concession that, yes, there are a class of decisions that are best made locally. Once you may get that concession, as you must, then the issue is done. Then it's only just uh, the conversation is what topics are local and what are national. And that's a, a discussion we should always be having. And sadly, of course, we we have long since sort of abandoned that idea, as I suggest, I think perhaps in the advent of what was happening in America uh, post-World War One, as we headed into the Depression in the late 1920s and the, the idea of somebody having to stand up and be the adult in the room and do something about what was happening to the economy and the workforce and so forth, we saw this massive creep uh, toward more and more power being pulled into Washington, D.C., less and less of it to the states, to the point where some people have, erroneously so, concluded that, you know, Washington, D.C., they, they can really make the best decisions for all of us, and we'll just kind of sit here blithely and take our orders. But in fact, and as we are discovering during the current debate over what states open at what speed, not one size all fits all. And so a discussion as to the importance of states' rights and how maybe at the end of the day the notion of a state like California saying, you know what, we're not in agreement with what Texas is doing. We have our reasons why, and we are therefore going to make our own decision based on what we that live in California think is best. 
Now, are some people threatened by that idea? Oh, absolutely they are. Let's explore that part of the equation when we come back after a timeout. With us today, best-selling author, constitutional expert, syndicated talk show host, and attorney Bob Zadek, host of The Bob Zadek Show. His program heard Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. More information about Bob, a lot of resources related to his program, his books, his guests, Online at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. A brief time out, an update on traffic, then back with more as Lifeline continues. Right now, though, 520, let's get that look at traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with constitutional historian, lawyer, talk show host, and author, Bob Zadek. His program, The Bob Zadek Show, Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock here in the San Francisco Bay Area at 8.60 a.m. The Answer. We're talking about California and some other states, too, exercising their constitutional muscle to say, we will decide for ourselves what is best for us. Now, the notion of that running against what's decided by other states largely has not not been a factor in recent history. In fact, probably the last time we saw a significant debate over this, the notion of splitting California or um, parts of the Pacific West Coast into multiple states notwithstanding, goes clear back to the 1800s or 1900s, the 19th century, when the debate was over the North versus the South. Now, this was a morally charged issue, to be sure, that of slavery. But then the idea was we couldn't allow the division to happen, a separation, and the ability of certain clusters of states to secede from the rest of the Union. I'm wondering, as we look at the current debate, whether or not this gets restoked, recharged, Bob, because of um, differencing, differences of opinion over handling of the COVID-19 crisis and the idea that if a state decides, hey, you know what, we're better off without what is the constitutional methodology or mechanism, if at all, available to actually make that become a reality? Well, you you raise a you make a very astute observation, as you you almost always do. Um, I should add, and one that is invites a very interesting analysis, interesting to me, and I think interesting to our listeners. We live at a time, many observers have said, of great, uh, of, of a despite among optimists, we are more separated, we are more at war with uh, each other than recent times in the past. There is the blues and the reds, them and us, and we are a very divided country. And why am I mentioning this point? Because you mentioned the Civil War when we were then, as now, a very divided country. And what's interesting is we are divided because states don't have enough rights. Now, let me tie it all together. It's very, very interesting, Craig. We are divided now, and elections are so bitterly contested, and there is so much hatred between and lack of understanding between the red and the blue, the Democrats and Republicans, the progressives and the conservatives, there is so much disagreement because when Washington has so much power over everybody, that means if the other side gets control over Washington and our side is on the outs, the other side will impose their will upon us, and we have nowhere to hide because we live, we could live, let's say, hypothetically, in a liberal state, we do in, in this case, and if a conservative, if the conservative party is in power in Washington, they will impose conservative points of view on us living in a progressive state. Therefore, every election becomes a battle to the death, because if the bad guys, in our opinion, win, they're going to make our lives miserable. Compare that with federalism, where we, have, we live in the nation-state 
of California. I'm not suggesting a political realignment. I'm simply suggesting the states have reacquired power they should have always had to begin with. They're still part of the union. They're still one country. Nothing dramatic. No breaking off from the United States. No civil war. No Mason-Dixon line. Just states have more power over our lives, and Washington has less. Now, a federal election has infinitely less meaning because who's ever in power in Washington is not going to affect us living comfortably in a state that comports with our views. And if we don't like the views of the state we live in, we can vote with our feet, move to a different state. Sure, it's a big deal, but it's not like moving to another country. Therefore, elections have much less at stake. And therefore, I'm not angry about liberals, if I'm a conservative, because they can't do anything to me. If I don't like my state, I move to a conservative state, done deal. And therefore, elections don't threaten me that much. So there is such a direct link between the polarity in our country today, when the stakes are very high, and what the polarity would have been with more federalism. So any conversation about nation states is a cure. It is it is not a threat. It is a cure to what ails our country insofar as polarity is concerned. And certainly many of the benefits that can spill out of this, you, you alluded to one a moment ago, automobile emission standards. Now, we know that under the Obama administration, very strict standards were put in place in terms of the number of miles per gallon that had to be obtained by manufacturers by a certain gate date. Washington, D.C. has rolled that back. But if Californians decide for themselves, no, we like that. We have a lot of people, a lot of roads, a lot of cars. We want to make sure we're trying to do the best we can as a state to protect the environment and the air that we breathe. We want tougher emission standards then I guess it's up to California to deal with the potential fallout if an automobile manufacturer says, you know what, we choose not to do business in your state, so uh, if you want to buy a Nissan, sorry, we won't sell in California because we can't meet your standards. That's that's not a bad thing you're suggesting. That's right. And by the way, Craig, if I can share with our – there's a wonderful anecdote, and it just happened, and I really want to share it with our listeners before we run out of time. I, Please do. You and I have been talking – about California being a nation state, Gavin Newsom wants more power. President Trump recently revoked federal school lunch standards as to what foods have to be served in cafeterias, a very local decision, local school systems. And he said, I am giving power back to the states. I am revoking the federal standard. You know what happened? California sued Obama. Presently, he sued the federal government for revoking the standards. So when, when Obama, when, when, when Trump says, I'm giving power back to the states, now who sues them? The same Gavin Newsom who wants more power to the states. That he makes no gets, sense because they could have easily just said, hey, thank you very much for this. We're going to institute our own standards here in California the way we want and keep it moving. And that's federalism, and Gavin Newsom just filed a lawsuit against the Trump administration for that. How how hypocritical can one be? Question mark. Well, and I think at the end of the day, too, Bob, it demonstrates that we as Americans, sadly, are so disconnected from the the history of our founding fathers and what original intent is all about and and the brilliance of how they designed this from the very get-go. We have so become accustomed to this modeled, uh, watered-down, ineffective, distorted version of what we think American democracy is or what we think federalism ought to be that, that, sadly, we've become our own worst enemies and maybe... Maybe one of the good things that can potentially come out of this current crisis that we're all battling with, uh, you know, as, as a country and, and, and certainly as a planet, and that is to revisit some of these notions and maybe come to the conclusion that having, having differences of opinions between states is not necessarily 
a bad thing. Bob Zadek, host of the Bob Zadek Show. Again, the program is every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. Bob's got all kinds of great resources, transcripts. He's got podcasts. He's got copies of his books, lists of guests, all of it available at his website. So be sure to check it out, bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. And we invite you to tune into the program Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock, a great alternative to a lot of the nonsensical talking head shows on Sunday mornings. Bob Zadek. All right, 534, we're a bit late. Let's get you caught up on traffic right now from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. In the midst of the wake of the coronavirus, there has been this snowball effect at so many levels between what's happening to the economy and the challenges that we're facing in terms of uh, the, the, the physical toll, the human toll in the tragic loss of life. Now we're seeing the disease roll its way through many of America's retirement communities, and of course, attacking some of the most vulnerable. But there's another arena of vulnerability here, too, that is not perhaps getting the kind of attention that it needs to receive, but it needs it. Americans that are now sheltering all together, perhaps in all, for some families, all too close quarters, compounded by financial stress, emotions spilling over from all that we read on the news every day, much of this has the potential to be a powder keg when it comes to domestic violence and abuse. Joining me with some insights is Carol Patterson. Carol Patterson is CEO of Shepherd's Gate Ministries. And Carol, as always, great to visit with you. Good to be with you, Craig. Thanks for having me on the show tonight. You know, this has been touched about in the media a little bit around the periphery, and I was delighted the other day to see that London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco, had announced that the city of San Francisco would be immediately incorporating the capability to receive 911 messages via text in the event that somebody is facing a threat in an abusive relationship and and being prevented from actually picking up a telephone and and would put them at greater risk. And I, and I quite frankly, I think the 911 text ought to be in um, 911 systems across the country. But this is an arena where you've got perhaps a strained relationship to be sure to be begin with, and now you've added all of this additional economic and emotional pressure that really can potentially be a powder keg for victims of abuse, no? That is so true. Um, Because if you think about in a normal time frame, one in three women will experience domestic violence with their intimate partner, and um, one in six homicide victims are killed by their intimate partner. That's in a normal time. Now let's look at it as a pandemic time of this coronavirus. I mean, that's why 911 calls have have doubled in San Francisco. Um, So this abuse, the abuser is anything can trigger this abuser in the home and they're not going to work. They might have lost their jobs. They don't know how they're going to pay their bills next week. They don't know how they're going to pay for more groceries because kids are home as well, and the kids are screaming in the background. So anything can really heighten the the abuser to lash out. And, and, And what we're seeing is that... Um, that uh, they could um, restrict the woman from from getting going outside the home, going shopping, threatening to expose them to the virus. Uh, but the real the real uh, devastating is the physical abuse and could ultimately result in a homicide. And there's a and again, as involved. you're pointed out, we're, we're taking a, a scenario that maybe is not healthy to be sure in the very get-go. 
And then you add to all of this the close quarters, uh, emotions related to what's going on in the news, um, the the idea that there's financial stress. And, and maybe, you know, normally if, if the husband gets a little bit wound up, he can walk out the door. He can head to the gym. There, there's so-called relief valves that are that are sometimes available. Uh, in this case, there is none, and and the only re- relief valve might be taking it out on the person that's right next to them, the spouse. And therein lies the real danger here, and that is children and and women that are in in heightened abusive situations, and feeling as if they have no one to turn to and no way of escape. Right. So what can we do in this situation? Um, Definitely calling 911 or texting 911 is your first option if your life is in danger. If you need to talk to someone, you can turn to the National Domestic Hotline. Um, That's 24 by 7, any time of day. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can text them as well. Uh, love is at two two five two two. They also have a really unique website. It's called thehotline.org, and it has a private chat room that eliminates any traceability that the woman has been on the site. Um, you also see an increase in child abuse at this time as well. The child doesn't have the escape of going to school or to a youth group. Um, so we're seeing that. We're seeing a lot of um, an increase in suicide. Uh, so there are multiple great websites that you can lean on. And um, California.gov and go to the coronavirus uh, 19 button. And there, there's the emotional health resource list. And all the numbers that I've recited and websites, those are on that resource list if anyone needs help. And there are text options nowadays. So they can do it privately with their phone. Let's bring this a bit closer to home to what you're dealing with in a ministry like Shepherd's Gate. Um, we've got a population of folks that are living there, both women and children, um, in, in close quarters. How has all of this impacted the manner in which Shepherd's Gate ministers to women that are dealing with abusive situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we have the one campus in Brentwood for Contra Costa County uh, for 18, and then we have a campus here in Livermore in Alameda County for 70. And right now we have 31 children across our campuses home from school, and that has increased our children's program quite a bit. And because we don't have volunteers, the limited staff have been working overtime to keep our program fully working for these women and children. Now, they have been in shelter in place for several weeks, and God would protect us and have us even shelter in place two weeks prior to this. Um, so they're very healthy, and we're following all the CDC laws. Um, to keep healthy, but that shelter in place, they really, because they don't watch TV, they don't really know how serious it is out there. They, um, we keep them in a bubble almost and help them work on their lives and stay focused on their recovery of healing from either domestic violence or uh, homelessness or addiction. So I'm so grateful for my staff that really have not left left the women and children. We are working hard every day to continue a full program for them. I know this certainly puts additional stress, as you alluded to, uh, on the staff and and additional challenges with the kids being home now and everybody having to uh, to deal with this. And I just want to ask listeners to be mindful of ministries like Shepherd's Gate that that do this all the time in terms of outreach and ministry and and the one-on-one contact with with people that, that need support, that are escaping abusive situations, and then imagine how complicated all of that becomes 
under the current crisis. Find out more information and to support the work and ministry of Shepherd's Gate, I invite you to check them out on the web at shepherdsgate.org. That's shepherdsgate.org. They have a long and significant ministry footprint here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And um, I'm pleased that Carol Patterson could spend a couple of minutes with us to, to update us on some of the challenges and also to provide you listening with some advice. If you are concerned about a situation that could turn into a powder keg, there's hope available. Again, that toll-free number for the National Domestic Abuse Hotline is 800-799-SAFE. That's 800-799-SAFE. And again, other resources available at the COVID-19 site for the state of California, which you can easily Google. Information on the web at shepherdsgate.org. That's shepherdsgate.org. Carol Patterson, I appreciate the time today. We'll hope to visit again real soon and, and hopefully under much far more pleasant circumstances. Blessings to you, Craig. Thank you. Got God bless. Take care. There's Carol Patterson, CEO of Shepherd's Gate Ministry. Information available on the web. Figure out how you can encourage them, support them, pray for them at shepherdsgate.org. 549 from KFAX. A look at traffic right now as we head over to the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation, 554 on the Tuesday edition of Lifeline. And as we talked earlier about the challenges of opening America back up again, uh, what about the challenges of unique ministries where closeness and physical contact and, and groups gathering together is what you do all the time? And not just like Shepherdscape ministry, but how about your own church? I mean, isn't the point of church gathering together, the assembling of ourselves? I know few churches that could maintain so-called social distancing very easily in the size of the average sanctuary. So what do churches do? How can they be prepared as we slowly begin to see um, the nation open up again? Well, offering some insights, Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. And uh, Brad, this this could be a potential minefield, I suppose, because there are the legalities of it all that we've talked about for the last several weeks together. But there's also the morality of it all. I don't think any pastor with any lick of sense in their mind, say perhaps the guy down in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, who's been in the news lately, I don't think any pastor really has it in their heart and mind that they're so bent on gathering together that they'll do it and they don't care if the elderly in their conversation get exposed or potentially die as a result. No pastor wants that. But how do we go about doing this safely once the time comes? That's a really important question, uh, Craig. And here's the good news. Instead of giving you the typical lawyer answer and say, well, there's, there's many factors and we really, you know, hemming and hawing. Actually, I've got some really good news. Uh, we at Pacific Justice Institute have uh, a number of things that have come together which allow us to give great specificity to churches on how they can legally and safely reopen their churches across the country. Uh, of course, it's going to depend state by state. Has those different factors come into place, whether you're Phase 1, Phase 2, Phase 3, having started Phase 1. But um, we're going to have a conference call on Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific time uh, for church leaders and they can, get, uh, they can register for it on, on our website. But we're going to go specifically, we've, we've merged it all together, and uh, the case law also out of Kansas and out of Kentucky, et cetera, uh, and we've put it into a very clear, uh, guided, clearly guided way of having churches be able to, to do so and uh, do so safely and legally. And I stress both of those uh, because, uh, you know, some people will say, well, they're going to look at some legal loophole, and do something stupid. Well, no, uh, churches—they uh, have everything. will have everything in front of them to be able to reopen. Uh, I think most churches in the country will be reopening within the next three weeks, uh, and if not sooner, in most in the country and uh, California. I'm not as sure on that, but uh, there are some other alternatives. For example, uh, gatherings um, as far as like uh, parking lot drive-in services. Uh, people are going to be very pleased to find out that that's pretty much now protected completely in California. And uh, we just had a victory in Washington State uh, regarding that for a church. 
So there's there's a lot moving forward, and people need to to be aware so their church isn't just um, sitting at home when there's things that they can be doing. Putting aside for a moment uh, the the perhaps lack of good judgment of Tony Spell, the pastor at the Life Tabernacle down in Baton Rouge, who I understand has now been arrested for allegedly potentially trying to drive a bus over a protester. Wow. Um, I, I suppose there is one aspect to this. There, there are the guidelines where the force of the law uh, can be put in place to prevent people from gathering in large crowds. But then there's the notion of just personal choice and personal liability. Let's talk about that for a quick moment here from a liability standpoint. Once we start to see the easing of these um, shelter-in-place restrictions, it doesn't negate the fact that the disease, the illness, the the virus is still out there. It could still potentially spread. This is going to be uh, maybe a new normal in the way we we gather together socially and in in church settings and other types of settings. is there a degree to which a a church finds any um, separation or inoculation, maybe a better word, um, in gathering together on a Sunday morning if the people that are coming to that church service are doing so with a complete, full knowledge and understanding that they're putting themselves at risk? Uh, yes, that's that's actually important. That's part of our, our program, our checklist, if you will, that we're going to be talking about uh, on Thursday and also have on our website on Friday. A very detailed checklist, and part of that is making the church members aware ahead of time that the, and strongly advising those who are at risk and give them clear, you know, clear uh, parameters of who, what, what, what does that mean, uh, to stay at home or to listen to the sermon and the, and the service parked in the parking lot in their car, assuming the church chooses to, to use that as a tool, uh, as one of several tools. Uh, there also can be mitigating ways for uh, churches to have uh, certain areas for uh, for people who uh, are at risk, uh, as well as uh, requirements in terms of masking, sanitization. Um, there's just a, like a, literally a whole, a very detailed checklist that, if they utilize those, it's going to be very, very helpful. From an insurance perspective, where that comes into play and liability is the extent to which the church is violating the law and therefore uh, are uh, no longer eligible for insurance coverage, or, or you know, the insurance company is only bound if they're violating the law, and they're, in many, many policies that's a part of their, the, uh, the contract. If you're openly, willingly violating the law and someone gets hurt because of you're violating the law or doing something criminal, uh, you're not covered. Well, the good news is uh, because of the, the layout with the Phase 1, Phase 2, Phase 3, um, as well as some of the, the recent case law, and, uh, and the, the, the movement, there's some other factors I want to waste your time on, but because of that, uh, there's actually going to be a great degree of certainty um, that uh, when churches do these things, they are not violating the law um, as, as things progress. And I'm really very optimistic that uh, we can see, like I say, most churches in uh, fully operational and meeting on Sunday mornings throughout the United States uh, within the next uh, three weeks, if not sooner. And again, for folks that want to sign up and be a part of that um, special teleconference, they can go to the Pacific Justice Institute website and register? Uh, that's right. And it's real important to understand that in three weeks, I'm not saying they can just open their doors and just come in and just the way it was before. They need it to comply with the guidelines and things that are all spelled out. But if they do that, they can have a lot of confidence and have their focus on the Lord that Sunday morning instead of worrying about police coming in or... Uh, the insurance company mailing uh, them. All right, and information again available if you go to pji.org. You can easily sign up and get more information. That's pji.org. Valuable information um, that I think every church needs to wrestle with, not only because of the immoral equation related to all of this, but certainly the liability as well. pji.org. Our thanks to constitutional lawyer, founder, and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Brad Dacus for that update. All right, I want to pivot to another update. Uh, you know, coronavirus is laying to bear a lot of what's going on in the world of politics, to be sure. And one of the unfortunate things that has come to the forefront is that under the current crisis, um, there's been some states that have taken advantage uh, of the of the situation and have really revealed their hand, as we've seen here in California. We're heretofore and historically 
Most Californians, if not most Americans, are totally, utterly opposed to late-term abortion. We have seen many pieces of legislation and in individual states across the country passed against such a thing. But sadly, here in California, instead of saying, you know, we've got to draw the line somewhere, we've instead completely erased the line. And we'll get an update now from Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee and the host of Life Matters, heard every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. What's going on with this, Brian? Uh, California Department of Health Care Services, I understand, is basically saying, yep, abortion on demand, all nine months. If the baby is due tomorrow, come on in. We got a doctor that will execute it. Wow. Yeah. And the reason this is significant, that's the result of, you know, even though we've been trying to fit home, there's things you can do. And our attorney, Sheila Green, filed a Freedom of Information Act request, and they did respond. And the reason you don't hear about this, and you touched exactly on the nerve, the average person does not support choice if that's what it means. The average person has been misled by a dishonest media. And I think we have to recognize that, that you're not getting the real facts from the pop media. They don't feel an obligation to the truth. And when it comes to abortion, particularly here in California, we're seeing that California has always now been employing, and depending on who was the governor, ardently pursuing unlimited abortion on demand there need be nothing wrong, and this is according to Department of Health Services, nothing wrong with either the child or the mother all the way through the ninth month, and the state will pay for that. The fact that that's now admitted in ink by the state is of huge significance, and the reality is that the media will not report on that. They have intentionally distorted what is legal under Roe. Oh, Roe is just early abortions, and if there's later ones, it's, it's for the really hard reasons. That's a lie. That is a lie, and Doe v. Bolton, the companion decision to Roe, which never gets analyzed by the pop media, Blackman especially gave that proviso for the psychological and sociological health of the mother. That literally, it's the attending physician that's that's the abortionist. The attending physician can decide, in his opinion, if this may impact the psychological, sociological impact on the mother, even in the future, having that baby. Therefore, he decides. And that's the exception. There's nothing wrong with the baby. That's okay. You can kill it. Mom has nothing physically wrong with her. That's all right. And the state of California has just admitted they will write the check for that. L.A. Times, NBC, ABC, PBS, and really here people need to know at the state capitol, if you cover the governor as a reporter, you have to be licensed by the governor's office. You're part of the governor's press corps. Now, I have to tell you, because I've watched, you can watch them every, every day now at noon. You can watch the governor give this presentation. They don't treat this governor like they treat the president. They're part of the official press corps. They don't ask probing questions. They don't question his policies. And if you're a member of the governor's press corps, your job is to make sure the governor looks good, apparently, because they don't raise this issue. He had invited last year every woman in America that wanted an abortion to come here. He's paying for abortions not only on out-of-state women, but on foreign nationals. And it can be as late in the pregnancy as you want to get it. If you want to throw that kid out, they'll pay. This is an ink from the Department of Health Services. And, and, and sadly here, you've got a case where apparently the governor is basically engaged in payback time, meaning organizations like Planned Parenthood, who most tend to benefit from behavior like this, because for them, it's it's part of their business model. It's what they do. Um, the the financial and the vote support that they received, that he received, rather, uh, during his bid for the governorship um, is now essentially being rewarded, wouldn't you think? 
Yeah, there's a political obligation. He's made, you might say, an oath to choice, which is abortion at any time, for any reason, or no reason in particular, just for choice. That's part of the radical feminist ideology. He is committed unalterably to that position, but the media doesn't examine it. And that's where we have to hold accountable the members of the secular media who fudge and misrepresent and use misleading terminology. They won't talk about late-term abortion. They'll talk about reproductive rights. They'll talk about choice, but they don't want to examine what's being chosen. Any description of that child alarms people. Literally, polling has consistently showed that even people who call themselves pro-choice, if they are asked about late-term abortion or the reason, if there's no reason for killing, it's not a hard case, your next-door neighbor who's never gone to church, they don't like killing kids that old. We don't need to frame it on our faith. This isn't about my religion. This is about objective fact that the state admits. The state admits it pays for these abortions, but the media will not talk about that because then their position loses its strength. And those who would otherwise consider themselves pro-choice, they don't agree with that. So the suppression of these facts is palpable, it's obvious, and unless you turn to other sources and get information, you, you need KFAX. We need Christian alternative sources of information because the popular media culture does not want us dwelling on what's really happening in our society. We have to dig in, and this most recent Freedom of Information Act request has been truly significant. We're not going to let it go because we have to let people know because most of them agree with us. Most of the people in the Bay Area, polls consistently, the Marist poll, the Gallup poll, every, every time Gallup asks, they've been very good, every time they ask polling questions, an annual report, it shows that at late term, people on our, they're on our side. So the media doesn't want to talk about late term. And we know that when New York... And Virginia last year decided to make a big thing about doing late-term abortions. Support swung to the pro-life position, and quickly they quit talking about that. But that's what's going on in California. The press will not talk about it. We have an obligation to let people know. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. More information available at californiaprolife.org. That's CaliforniaProLife.org, and we invite you to tune in every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. for Life Matters, an informative half hour. Brian breaks down the details of the news every day related to the pro-life issue to deepen your understanding. Life Matters, Saturday mornings at 11, right here on KFAX, on the web, CaliforniaProLife.org. All right, 610 on the clock. Time for me to step aside, get you updated on some traffic.